CBC congregation, wherever most of you are, airports, on, on highways, throughout the United States, wherever you are, we're thankful for each other. And we're thankful that we have this Word of God. Uh, Word of God, the Bible, I noticed, I was thinking last night, I was sharing the Christmas story at the Highlands tree lighting thing. And I was thinking, the Bible is a lot like a phone booth. There's a lot of people nowadays who have yet to lay their eyes on either one. And we gotta do something about that. We need the word of God in our life to bring something new and living to us. So we're gonna look at, I'm gonna finish up a message I started about, uh, I don't know how long ago, 1 Kings 17, verse eight. So it's in your Old Testament, 1 Kings 17, verse eight. We have a vocabulary test here, okay? Faith. So you're here today, so what is faith? Faith is the evidence of things not yet seen. What is hope? Hope is the expectancy of what you have faith to see. The hope is the waiting for that to come to pass. Love, what is love? Well, love has many definitions. The best one is called agape love in Greek. It is the essence of our God. It is an unconditional love. It's a love not based on performance or lack thereof. It's a love because the essence of our heart is love. It's not based on performance or lack thereof. What is grace? Grace is one of the most fundamental words we have got to not only know in our life, but we've got to put it into practice. Grace is the reception of something from another that we do not deserve. Some people call it unmerited favor. The grace of God is at work in your life today for God is giving you what you truly don't deserve. Can I get an amen for that? God is giving us what we do not deserve. Now what is mercy? Well, mercy is kind of the opposite of grace. Mercy is the withholding from someone of something they do deserve. The judge sits in his uh, in his courtroom and he's passing uh, judgment on a criminal and he has, he has the wherewithal to pass the maximum sentence or a minimum sentence. Well, mercy would be to withhold the maximum sentence and give him a minimum sentence. Withholding from someone what they actually deserve is mercy. Giving somebody what they actually don't deserve is grace. The whole Christian uh, doctrine of Christianity, the whole, the whole faith is based on faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And to do things with that love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Receive the grace of God, that which you don't deserve. Oh, and here it is, extend to others the grace that you got from God that they don't deserve. Let's remember, this vertical relationship also has a horizontal repercussions. That's why the cross looks like that. What you receive horizontally from God, you extend to others. We receive grace from God, we extend grace to others though they don't deserve it. God has mercy on us, therefore we have mercy on others. God loves us, therefore we share that very same love with someone else. Truly, I don't really truly believe we really have what we think we have from God until we give it away. I don't think you truly know what love is until you extend it to someone who's unlovable. 
I, I really don't know that we really understand mercy until we extend mer mercy to someone else, especially someone who's hurt us. Oh, here's one. We could talk all day long about forgiveness and how God has forgiven us, but yet we hold unforgiveness and bitterness towards someone else. We're just not there yet in our understanding. Our understanding of the Christian faith cannot be cerebral and cerebral alone. Our understanding has to be experiential to say that we know. Grace, faith, hope, love, mercy, forgiveness. And here we have a message entitled Grace, Bread, Oil, and Faith. Now when we last hung out here with the prophet Elijah, he was, he was in dire straits, he was in bad shape. This guy in the middle of a drought was at the brook Cherith and he was dependent upon water from that brook to survive and nasty foul ravens to feed him. He was at or close to his bottom. God, and, the brook, and the brook dried up. Gets worse, the brook, his only source of sustenance and water dried up. So God's gonna move him now. But why did God just keep the brook running? Why not, why not just stay there? Why not just hang out until the drought's over and somehow make the brook continue to keep this guy alive and the ravens? Because God's not just about staying alive. God's about our life impacting others. So where they, where's he gonna move them? Well, he's gonna move them uh, to Zarephath. Zarephath is the hometown of Queen Jezebel. We're gonna do some work now in a, in a foreign land that's gonna have repercussions. It's going to end up ministering to a group of people rather than one guy rely on God and a few birds in the desert. We're now gonna go into the hometown of Jezebel and we're going to minister God's grace to a whole new group of people through a guy who's pretty much near bottom. He says, arise and go to Zarephath. If you'll remember the first part of this message, desperation's a pretty, pretty powerful thing. And I think it's so powerful, and I think we know it, when we're desperate, when we are desperate, we will act. Most people will act. Most people will make a change. Most people, when, the, when you get the diagnosis that every artery in your heart is 120% clogged, then we'll put down the Twinkies. We are a people who sometimes, in certain areas of our life, if we're honest about it, will actually do something we know we need to do when we get desperate enough to do it. When the club championship is coming up, and you can't even hit the ball, just to save face with all your country club cronies, you're gonna start working on your short game a few weeks before the tournament, because you are desperate. I know, I know desperation. I've been in so many different forms of desperation. I know it works. So Elijah is desperate, and he's desperate for the Lord's intervention, He's open to whatever idea you come up with. And right now we're going to Zarephath. We're gonna put the power of God on display. We're gonna let your desperation motivate you. And by the way, here's a prayer. I, 
Consider, but don't do it unless you're serious about it. Lord, if I'm in need of desperation, I welcome it. He's praying that one. Lord, if there's anyone in my life or anything in my life that keeps me from you, take it away. Who's praying that one? Desperation, motivation. And not everything in the Christian walk is easy. Amen? So off he goes. See, he says, arise and go to Zarephath. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. A widow, all right? So, okay, we're going to see a widow. Um, Wait a minute, there's no believers in Zarephath. How do you command a non-believing widow? What's that about? How does God get ravens to feed a desperate prophet? And how does God get an unbelieving widow to get on board with everything he says? It's hard enough to get someone who does believe on board with what the Lord says, let alone someone who doesn't believe. So let's see what happens. Well, first of all, widows are notorious for their poverty. Widows, especially widows without a son. If you don't have a son, you have no social security. The the son is your retirement program. The son is the one that provides the food for you. He does work the land. In your husband's absence, no son, no food. Look at Naomi. She didn't have much going for her after she lost her husband and her two sons. So yeah, this woman has has a son, but she's still poor. And remember, there's a drought. So things aren't exactly, we're not exactly moving up as we move away from the brook. brook. Jesus even referenced this in uh, Luke 2 and 24. He says, then he said, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. God is a defender of widows. God is serious about widows. Pure and undefiled religion is to look look after orphans and widows. One of the things you do at a church is make sure the widows are taken care of. And off he goes. He's going to find this unbelieving widow and figure out what to do. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Okay, little does he know, she is more broke than he realizes. She's got nothing. She's gathering sticks. She's gathering sticks in hopes of going home, having a little meal with her son, and dropping dead. That's her future. That's who he's working with. The gate of a city is like, um, it's like the National Enquirer. If you want any gossip, you want any news, you want to know what's going on, what kind of legal things are happening, what's for sale, uh, the, the gate of the city is where you make, uh, you adjudicate decisions legally. The elders sit there. You welcome visitors. You check out visitors. It's serious. The gate of the city is where you go to find out what's going on in the town, what's the heartbeat of the town. The gate of the city sometimes is where the, the king will sit just to figure out what's happening. And, and, and at this gate of the city, he sees this uh, 
this poor old widow woman. It doesn't look like much is happening for this guy in a positive sense. And she's not even a rich widow. She's not an Israelite widow. She's just a poor Gentile widow in the hometown of Queen Jezebel. So God commanded the widow to feed Elijah like he commanded the unclean ravens. The woman, (laughs) this is weird, the woman knew she was supposed to feed this prophet or help him, but she didn't really know why. It's not like she's got a Bible and she goes to church and she listens for the voice of God. That's not happening. She just kind of knows. So God, God is leading this woman to do things she doesn't even know why she's doing, and she's doing it for a greater good well beyond her, which we'll find out later. And this is what God does in all of our lives. Like a new convert finding themselves walking to the altar to receive Christ. Every once in a while, you'll share the gospel and someone will come forward to receive Christ. You ever heard someone say, I don't know what was going on. Just one minute I'm sitting there and the next minute I'm just walking forward. I didn't even know what was happening. That's what's happening to the widow. Something not in her body, not in her soul, not in her mind or will or emotion, something, I don't know what it was, God got a hold of this woman and made her to do something. And she seemed unaware. She just assumed be left alone to gather sticks. She's not looking for a prophet, not a man of God, not to do good. She's looking for really a way to go home, have some kind of humble meal and die. God told Elijah that he had commanded a widow to feed a prophet like a raven. And then he says, please bring me a little water in a cup and please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So Elijah is boldly now putting this request in as faith. She had to believe as well. And you know what? A lot's being asked of this woman. I would say as much as being asked of this woman as was being asked of the, the widow's might, the woman who came and gave everything she had, anything this woman gives is everything she has. She has so little, if she has anything to give, it's everything she has. There's no little bit, there's no little gift with her. Her gift is everything. Any gift she gives is the totality of all her possessions. That's where she is. And she's not generous just because she gives everything. That's all she can give. Spurgeon puts it this way. And he says, I want you to, I want you to give me a little piece of bread. Now what, what God is doing for this woman, if you, if you read between the lines, what he's doing for this woman is he's giving this woman an opportunity to exercise what she's probably really, really good at. But it's been so long since she's had the opportunity to do it she may have even forgotten she's good at it. And what is she good at? She's good at serving other people. Nobody in this town after three and a half years of drought is serving anyone else. Everyone is looking out for themselves. She now has an opportunity that's come along where she goes through each and every day. No one even notices she's alive. Now she has an opportunity to do something for someone else, and it kind of like is strange, and she doesn't really have anything, but just the opportunity to serve someone else is seemingly exciting to this woman. How many of you have the gift of of mercy or the gift of gender or the gift of helps? 
and, and you like serving people. Raise your hand so I can see. All right, well, that's great. You know what I'm talking about then. An opportunity presents itself to do something for someone else and you come alive. You know, it's kind of like, oh, awesome. I get to be a conduit of some kind of blessing to someone else. I get to help someone else. That's exciting to some people. And that is seemingly exciting to her. Perhaps she was chosen for her servitude. And that's likely what brought her joy. Isn't that interesting? As down as she was, as broke as she was, as destitute as she was, the one thing that probably brought her more joy than anything else is the opportunity to help someone else. You know, maybe sometimes when we're in the worst shape we could be in, or at least we perceive it that way, and we feel like we have nothing to give, is it not possible that that's when we have the most to give? That's when what we give matters most? I hear people all the time, I don't really know what to do. I don't know what God's will is for them. I don't know who I can help anybody. I don't have anything to help anybody with. Do you know how few people nowadays help others? Are you kidding me? That brings joy. The personalization of a human being in this culture, the one says you're noticed, I see you, I understand you, I see what your need is. I don't have anything, but I'll tell you what, I'm gonna be there for you, I'm gonna give what I have. That's huge. And this is who God sent the prophet of God to, to believe. Now, what is, what is going on here? He doesn't just shower this woman with, with oil and flour, uh, like a year's supply. He doesn't like get so crazy that he just fills up her pantry. No, he doesn't. He doesn't work that way at all. What God wants to do is take this destitute woman who has no faith or knowledge of God whatsoever, who realizes that maybe this guy has a God, but he ain't mine. He, he genuinely wants to transform her life into an experiential understanding of the one true God in the hometown of the worst queen ever walked the face of the earth. Now, what would he do? Would God just deluge this woman with a swimming pool full of flour and an endless supply of oil and delivery box trucks to her house? No. No, he's not doing it. That's not how God works in this woman's life anyway. All he wants her to do is make a piece of bread. Bring me a little water in a cup and please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. You see, the grace of God doesn't call men or women to wake up one day and accept Christ and then sit around for the rest of their life, die and go to heaven. That's not the intent. I mean, I guess that can happen if it's a genuine conversion, nor does the grace of God want someone to live in sin their whole entire life, then a half hour before they die, accept Christ and go to heaven. That can happen, we know that, but it's not the intended, really, purpose of the grace of God. That's not really what the ideal life looks like. Some of you want to get in at the end, okay, that's fine. Some of you got in at age seven, haven't seen you in 50 years, 
okay, but it's not the intended grace that God had in mind. The grace that God has in mind is, I want you to find out where you're at and what you have, and I want you to build by faith the smallest of things, and on top of that, we'll build a life of faith, of generosity, and of servitude. I want you to make one piece of bread for this man, and though you'd rather eat it, and though your son would rather eat it, I want you to give it to this man out of the absolute nothing that you have in your kitchen. We'll build on that kind of faith. Now that's grace. That's given the woman an opportunity to do something that she otherwise didn't have, and it's a gift. Look, look, it's a gift to give this woman who doesn't even wanna live. You've given this woman a purpose and a mission, albeit for one afternoon, that gives her an identity and gives her a purpose and gives her a value. The grace of God will impart to you an opportunity to give something of yourself, though you may have a low opinion of yourself, and it's a gift. It's a gift. You have a gift today to give out of your abundance something to someone who doesn't have it, and that's purpose, that's value, that's mission, that's important. What a gift. To ask somebody to give something is the gift. God wants us to learn about faith early and build on that and repent and believe again and confess and do something else and be faithful with a few things and God will give you charge over many. He wants you to, in the process of ever evolving revelation of his goodness and greatness and generosity, he doesn't want to a 53 foot semi backed up to your front porch and dolly after dolly after dolly of prizes and bread and oil in a new range, in a new kitchen. He just wants her to make a piece of bread. How wise is that? So she said, as the Lord your God lives, in other words, she recognizes that he has a God, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar, and see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Her perceived imminent death is a result of her perception that she has no value. She does respect the fact that this guy, whom she just met, has a God, and he's just now finding out she's desperately poor. And the last morsel of food for herself and her son is not first gonna go to herself and her son. And Elijah said, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. Afterward, make some for yourself and your son. When you're ministering to someone else, you don't want to necessarily vocalize this, 
But you're asking yourself in the back of your mind, as I am asking myself in the back of mine right now as I give this message, what is one of the probably three simplistic things that are getting in this, your way of hearing this message and actually putting it into practice? And there's nothing new under the sun. It's probably fear. It's either fear or shame. Fear, shame, or hiding. It goes way back to Adam and Eve. To oversimplify it, some of you are afraid to help other people because you don't feel adequate enough, because you don't feel like you can be yourself, because you don't feel like it'll be appreciated. Whatever you're afraid of. If you want to minister to someone else, find out what they're afraid of and help them to understand what they're afraid of. They may not even know. She cannot afford to be afraid to make the first piece of bread. She can't. If she's afraid to make the first piece of bread, it's over. She might as well die because she's going to miss it. She just has to believe enough to not be afraid enough, if not believe at all, just not to be afraid. She needs to make a piece of bread. She needs to give it to him first. This is God's first word to the widow ever, not a direct word, an indirect word through a prophet. I need you to bake it and give it to me first. There it is. And her present crisis rightly made her afraid. God wanted her to put her fear away and replace it with a trust. Trust is not trust unless you put it into action. Trust is rhetoric, empty word. It's like you've offended somebody in your family and you can no longer have Thanksgiving dinner like all the other families and you have to earn back the credibility that whatever you did, you lost. And you have to earn it back. It takes time. It may, in a, may be in a different context that the relationship is restored. It may never be like it was before. However you offended or they offended you, if there's not grace and forgiveness there, there's no chance of it ever coming alive again. It's just something that's probably gonna be redefined in a different, with a different boundary and a different set of rules until we get comfortable with that and maybe move on later. You know, not everything is a Hallmark movie where everything gets resolved at one time in one moment. I notice this, I watch these movies. I do, I watch them every year. I learned so much from Hallmark movies. One year, they lean in for the kiss and it never happens. The next year, slobbering all over each other. Every other year. I watch what, what ideology comes into the Hallmark movies. I watch what they do to Christmas in Hallmark movies. Christmas is becoming, according to Hallmark, a magical time, a, a time of giving, sharing, of joy, time of togetherness. It's all of that. And I don't guess there's much wrong with any of that. Until the one part of it never, ever makes its way into the narrative. So she has to trust this prophet. She has to make a piece of bread. This is her assignment. Go and do as you said, but make me a small cake from it first. A bold request. 
Almost a selfish, arrogant request of a man of God depending upon and taking from a poor widow woman. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the earth. Wait a minute now. Once she agrees to make the bread, he unloads the noose. Oh, the flour is never going to dry up, nor is the oil. It's, it's plentiful. It's going to flow. It's going to flow like box trucks are in front of your house, unloading case upon case of olive oil, sack upon sack of flour. It's going to start coming like crazy. Make room in your kitchen, in your pantry, in your cellar. It's coming. You can make all the bread you want to make. Once she decides to make one piece and give it to him, he promises a never-ending source of flour and oil. Ah, this is getting interesting. But is that true? No, it's not true. Heavens, no. God's not going to give her an endless supply for all the years she's got to live on this earth. No, as soon as the drought's over, so is the grace, so is the supply. The drought's over, go pick an olive. The drought's over, the trees will be watered, get the oil from the olives. In the meantime, when there's no rain whatsoever, there's no reason there would be a harvest, no, no wheat, no barley, no flour, God will supply, but when the rain starts to come, you're on your own, lady. And that's the way it is. The grace of God gives you what you don't deserve. After a while, if you don't eat, or you don't work, you don't eat. There's a process, there's a growth, there's a maturation. Don't keep asking God to give you things you need to be working for. There's nothing wrong with working. There's nothing wrong with laboring for something. God's going to give you what you need. he needs to give you when you don't deserve it and you have no other way, but he's going to teach you in the process that he's not a gravy train. I have this class of homeschoolers, and uh, they're a lot smarter than I am. I said, uh, I'm trying to teach them to make a case for something that they might oppose. And one of them says, why? And I said, well, Jesus always knew what was going on in the hearts and the minds of the people who opposed him. Jesus took time to think through another person's position before he got into a discussion with them. They go, okay, we can do that. So I said, okay, give me a reason that God is a Democrat. Oh, because I won't let him just sit there and say, I don't know. That is not allowed in my class because that'll only be received with, think, you're here to think, think. I want you to think, use your head, think, use the mind of Christ. Is, if God is a, is God a Democrat, what him says, yes, yeah, sort of, he likes feeding the poor. I said, all right. Now, is he a Republican? Yes. If you don't work, you don't eat. I said, now we're thinking. 
I asked them to give me a cogent argument for the legalization of prostitution. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Then they began to think. I said, you have to understand the world in which you live and the mindset of the world in which you live to make a difference in the world in which you live. You have to think. And God's thought this one through. We're not gonna throw open, let's make a deal, curtain number one, two, and three for the woman. We're gonna get her to make a piece of bread. And then we're gonna help her grow in her faith because the whole town of Zarephath is dependent upon it. So off he goes. I will cut off my supply when the rain comes. I'll supply in a different way. But the woman did it. She did as she was told to do, commanded to do. And then God sent rain on the earth. She did and went away and did according to the word of Elijah. She and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. She did it. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. The sickness was so serious there was no breath left in him, her son. So she said to Elijah, what have I done? What have I, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. He, he took him from her arms. He had to, uh, the, the real Hebrew there is he had to rip her. He had to tear the boy, the dead boy away from her arms. And he brings her back to life. And he gives the boy back to her. What, what this narrative is trying to say is, you don't need but a mustard seed of faith. But you've got to act on it. Faith without works is dead. Make your piece of bread. Make someone else more important than yourself and your needs at times. Do it because the Lord commanded it. And watch him throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out upon you a blessing there's not room enough to contain. I met a guy one time. He came in with some money. And he, was, he had a mentor, and his mentor knew enough to tell the guy that he needed to go meet with a friend of his who was a believer and understood how to use money in the kingdom of God. So he met and met with him. And the guy gave him some books on tithing. And he gobbled up the books. He just read them ferociously. And it so changed his life. There's only maybe 10 to 15 people I know in my lifetime who have put this to practice. But his family started increasing the amount they gave to the kingdom year after year until he's up to 40%. And the amount that his family keeps continues to exceed the amount he would have had had he gave 10%. 
I know some people whose goal in life it is to get to 90% of their income. That's money. But you have to make a step. You, you have to make a piece of bread. You have to put something into practice. You have to understand that what God tells you to do something, though it may not make sense and it looks like it may hurt, it's for your good. And the grace of God is to give you what you don't deserve. But that happens on so many different levels as time goes on in your walk. And it happens in different ways, in different circumstances, with different sets of teaching and, and revelations and illustrations. If you're not growing in your faith, as our worship team comes up, if you're not growing in your faith, you may not, listen to me now, you may not be giving the Lord something to work with. If your Christian walk is a plateau, we just got done thinking about newness. If there's a lack of newness, if your walk is predictable, if you're, if you're saying the same things now that you're gonna say five years from now as it pertains to what you understand of God, if it's too rote, if it's too predictable, it's too flatline, if it's, there's lack of mystery, a lack of curiosity, a, a lack of an aggressive prayer life, if you're not asking for things bigger and better and more, more divine than you have before, if you're not asking him to help you die to self, if you're, if you're just doing that, your, your walk is not a representation of what the grace of God wants it to be. That's a tragedy. I mean to tell you, man, there's an adventure out there for each and every one of us. There's things around the corner you didn't even know were gonna happen are gonna happen. The inevitable challenges are coming your way. The times of the crushing, the times of the pressing. We've got to be ever evolving, changing, growing, maturing people. Challenged, desperate at times. You can't be comfortable in any culture with Christianity. Too predictable. Not, has no allure. A lack of predictability, a lack of curiosity, a lack of mystery, a lack of something. It has no allure to a dying world. But rattle somebody right where they are. Rattle them. Rattle them and challenge them. I want you to give me a piece of bread first, not you or your son. I want to set it up in such a way that I'm going to give you what I didn't know I was giving you, an opportunity to do what you love the most, serve other people. Only God knows that. You get up in the morning and you've got people you're going to meet, you've got appointments, you've got phone calls. You cover those in prayer. It's not gonna be like it's always been. It's gonna be a different call, different conversation. It's gonna end in a different way. It's gonna start in a different way. A different subject's gonna come up because you've prayed about it. Give me eyes to see and ears to perceive what your spirit is saying to me today for each and every individual, where they are, what do they need most? What can I not see that I need to see? How can I best minister to that person by the grace of God? Sometimes giving something to them is the worst thing you can do, but it's the first thing we think of. We can't buy ourselves out of ministry. 
We have to be sensitive to the voice of God when we're dealing. These are people's lives we're talking about here. These are people's lives. And oftentimes they're destitute, poor, and broke, if not financially, spiritually. And we need to have the sensitivity, like Elijah, to know exactly. If he stays at the brook, nothing happens. The grace of God gave that woman an opportunity that no one in their natural mind would have given her. We would have ran over to that woman and showered her with garbage bags full of olive oil and flour. And we would have ruined everything for not having the mind of the Lord. Not every nonprofit needs money. Not every nonprofit needs money right now. They may need it later. Not every person you meet do you need to help in the way that you think you're helping. Sometimes you're helping them by not helping them. And this is what makes who we are and what we do exciting. Because we're most effective when we have the mind of Christ and we can hear the voice of the Lord. That's why you're in the Word. People come into my office thinking, I made it this far, man, I'm in. He's gonna give me exactly what I asked for. And I give them exactly what they didn't want. The truth that sets the captives free. May you be vessels of the grace of God because you have a sensitivity to the voice of God. And may you only give what you're called to give. And may you take only what you're called to take. And may the results be left up to the Lord who knows all. Yeah, his grace is enough. And it's gonna be just enough for the circumstance. Another circumstance comes up and his grace will be enough. It'll be sufficient for that circumstance. But we're Americans. If one is good, two is better. If two is good, 12 is much better. And if 12 is good, you can't imagine what 150 would be. One piece of bread was enough May you have the mind and the eyes and the ears of Christ as you minister the grace of God to a lost and dying world. Let's, let's worship. Him.